this is, as we've said many times, a disorienting time, a time when it is hard to know what we can actually know. It's a challenge. I was listening to a leader within the Evangelical Free Church this week talking about how during times of crisis, it's really hard to think straight and people need help thinking straight. And so my hope this morning is that as we look at the second part of this story about Jesus in John 11, that we would at the very least, and most importantly, be reminded about how to think straight about him, to remember who is with us during this time, because he really is. These are not stories that are mere spiritual myths that are made up to sort of to sort of make us feel better during this time, to sort of inspire us in a general theological or general general psychological way. This is a story about somebody who's real and who's just as real today as he was when the story first happened. He is a person who cares for you. As we'll see in the story this morning, maybe somebody who cares for you more deeply even than you want him to. And he is able to care for you that deeply. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, if you're watching this because you're curious, I I really hope that the person that you find presented in this story, Jesus, as John presents him truly, I, I hope that the person you find presented is somebody that you find to meet your your real needs, your deepest needs, the needs that maybe have been covered over by the stuff of life in many ways, and those covers are being peeled back, and you're recognizing needs that had been covered before and now are more obvious, I hope that you have the opportunity to see Jesus as the one who is perfectly suited uh, to meet those needs. Before I read the text, I just want to pray for God's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Father, you've been gracious to speak and to have your words committed to writing, and you've been gracious to allow that writing to come down through the ages, even to us. We know that the point of what you've written in the end is the revelation of your Son and his work on our behalf. So we pray that your Spirit would open our eyes to see Jesus as he is in this passage, that we might trust him as he is this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we found that Jesus loves his friends. We also found that Jesus does what we don't expect as he loves his friends. We also found that Jesus is the point of everything that he does as he loves his friends and as he does unexpected things. Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick. He knows that Lazarus' sisters want him to come, and he chooses not to come. And he does that because he loves them. And eventually he, he, he knows, perhaps he's told directly by his father himself, that Lazarus has in fact died. And it's at that point that he chooses to go uh, to Lazarus' sisters, to Martha and to Mary. And he meets them, and he has a conversation with Lazarus' sister Martha. And he tells her that he is the resurrection and the life. That the point of all this is that people would believe in him and would find life in him, not only temporary life, not only 
life even restored from temporary death, but genuine, eternal life, that he is that life. And then he gives that life to those who believe in him. That's where we've been so far. And we find two more things about Jesus this morning. We find that Jesus enters our sorrows, and we find that Jesus came to undo death. We see that in John 11, verses 28 through 44. If you're watching our live stream through a web browser, you'll actually find a link to this text uh, just below that that live stream, and so you're welcome to click that link and, and find that and read along as I read here as well. John 11, starting in verse 28. When she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. <clears throat> but some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. I mentioned last week that we were going to see three things about Jesus this week. I changed my plans just slightly during my preparation. We are, as I said, now going to see two things about Jesus, that Jesus enters our sorrows and that Jesus came to undo death. And then our plan is to look at the final section of the story in the, toward the end of John 11, next week that shows us something else about Jesus and in a certain sense also shows us something about ourselves. I think that that part of the text will help to prepare us for our particular celebration of Jesus' finished victorious work on the cross as well as his resurrection. This week, though, Jesus enters our sorrows 
And Jesus came to undo death. So this part of the story opens with Martha, the, the practical sister, the, the woman of action, coming to Mary, her deeply feeling sister, who has remained in the home with many of her friends who have come to console her. And she comes to her in, pri- in private, And we see something of the initiative of Jesus drawing near in the thing that Martha tells her sister Mary. She says in verse 28, the teacher is here and is calling for you. She tells Mary this in private, perhaps whispers in her ear or takes her into another room. And we have no reason to believe that Martha is making this up, that she's trying to manipulate her sister to come. We have every reason to believe that Jesus was actually calling for Mary, that he wanted her to come to him, that this was part of his way of entering into her sorrows. This really is Jesus' call in the book of John to Mary and to others and to us, come to me, come to me. And this call that gets repeated both with those words and in other words comes with a promise in John 6.37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This call, come to me, comes with the promise, you will always be welcome when you come to Jesus. You'll always be welcome when you come as you are. That's really what Mary does. Mary is uh, not um, a model of perfection. Martha is not a model of perfection. But they both do something that demonstrates the basic right response to Jesus. They come to him. Mary comes to him. This is such a needed example for us, such a needed model, because we can go wrong really easily, especially when when things happen that are really bad. And bad things happen. We're seeing a lot of bad things happen. We're seeing the numbers escalate. The Bible doesn't try to hide that. The Bible is graphically honest about the fact that bad things happen. It doesn't always provide an explanation. Sometimes it just provides a description. But it's honest. And if you've been around... Christians, if you've been around sort of church people a lot, then you might expect the Bible to tell us when we experience bad things, to tell us don't let any negative response come out of your mouth. Let's only say happy things about this. All the bad things that you feel as a result, let's let's either ignore those or shove those down, but certainly don't let them come out. Let's only talk about happy things because saying Saying unhappy things won't help. That's not what the Bible says about our response to unhappy things, about our response even to tragedy. And it's also not what the Bible models for us. In fact, we have a whole book in the middle of the Bible, in the Psalms, that gives God's language for us for every kind of human experience including suffering. And so you'll hear the Psalms say things like, how long, O Lord? How long? It'll say things like, your people are like 
sheep being handed over to the slaughter. Uh, That's not just let's only say nice things. That is honesty. And we need to make a very, very important distinction here that Mary helps to make for us. There are two kinds of, we could say, negative expression in the Bible. Two kinds of negative speaking. One kind we could call complaining. The other kind uh, has been labeled lament. Complaining and lament. Complaining is actually dealt with severely in the Bible, where people say negative things and as a result experience severe consequences. Lamenting is what is modeled in the Bible. We see lamenting in the Psalms, and the difference is not so much in the words that are used. The difference between the complaining that is condemned and the lamenting that is encouraged is the direction we're facing. Complaining faces away from God and says, this is terrible. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. Lamenting faces toward him. And that's what makes the difference. And that's what Mary does. We can actually imagine a very different response from Mary using very, very similar words. She comes to him and she says to him the same thing Martha had said, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's lament. You can imagine a very, very similar phrase being used as complaint. She stays in the house and she says, If he had been here, my brother would not have died. She doesn't do that. She says essentially the same thing, but she brings it to Jesus. It's a model for us. It's a model of how we cooperate with Jesus entering our sorrows. We come to him without trying to clean it up, without trying to figure out how to tell Jesus we're fine when he asks us how we're doing. We come to him with everything that we're experiencing, but we come to him. Maybe it's, Lord, I'm afraid. Lord, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm under a lot of pressure and I'm feeling it. I'm having trouble thinking straight. Lord, I'm lonely. And you can do something about it. And notice how Jesus responds. Mary says exactly the same thing to Jesus that Martha has said. Jesus talked to Martha. Jesus weeps with Mary. He doesn't have kind of a system that he uses on everyone. He enters our sorrows where they are. And if we look closely, we find that Jesus does more then weep. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved sounds like empathy. And there's very clearly empathy here. The people who are there with him, as they see him weep, they can look at him and say, See how he loved him. He cares. I know that. There's empathy here, and there's more than empathy. Sometimes Jesus cares for us more deeply than we're comfortable with, more deeply than we know we need him to. The kind of care that Jesus shows here is in some ways similar to a doctor who is caring for a four-year-old who's in pain, who's in a lot of pain, and understandably, doesn't really care 
Why? They just want it to stop. It just hurts. And they would like the doctor to do something about it. And this doctor knows things that the four-year-old doesn't know, perhaps knows, for instance, that this four-year-old is suffering from cancer. And the doctor empathizes with the pain of the child, and the doctor cares even more deeply about what the child is dealing with than the child knows how to. Jesus does that. In fact, we find his care described in more dimensions than empathy even a dimension of anger. When John says that he was deeply moved, that's a term that actually includes an aspect of anger. There is anger here. It's, it's used in Mark's gospel, in Mark 14.5, when people are unrighteously angry. A lady comes to Jesus and she, she pours perfume on him that would have been worth a year's wages. And... Some of his own disciples are indignant. And they say, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, that's about a year's wages, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Form of the same word. They're expressing anger, like they're snorting at her. And so there is a kind of anger that Jesus is experiencing that he's responding with to this situation now certainly we can expect that what anger means and what anger does for jesus is different from his very short-sighted and in one case even wicked followers jesus doesn't do in his anger what we often do in ours he doesn't attack and he doesn't abandon he draws near In Jesus' heart, there's room, because there's no sin in Jesus' heart, there's room for there to be more than one dimension of response to people's trouble. There's room for genuine sadness and empathy. There's room for pure, holy anger about what's really underneath the thing that's causing their sadness. He is sad and far more than sad about the things that result in their sadness, including their own short-sightedness, including, in some cases, their own unbelief. And he knows that they, like we, in, in some manner, share the blame for the sadness that they experience not because they caused the death of Lazarus, but because each one of us is a sinner and each one of us contributes to the sadness and the brokenness in the world. Our cancer is not like the cancer of a four-year-old child. Our cancer, to one degree or another, is chosen. Jesus is deeply moved. One commentator even translates that outraged. And he is greatly troubled. And that, that description foreshadows what is to come and what it's going to mean for Jesus to truly enter our sorrows. This is a term that's used later in John. In John twelve twenty seven, just a page over if you're looking at a paper copy of the Bible, when Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. He knows what's coming. He knows what he's going to do. 
And so Jesus enters the sorrows of those who are around him in a way that they can't even yet comprehend. Just like a doctor who refuses to merely mask symptoms when he knows that he has a cure. So, pause there for a minute. Looking at the example of Mary, the example of Martha, coming to Jesus without trying to clean things up, and yet coming to him as Lord. The first word they say when they come to him is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So come to him like Mary and Martha did. Come to him as Lord. And because he is Lord, know that he is going to care more deeply than you even realize you need him to. We, we might think as well during this time about how we can be an expression of this care of Jesus to one another. As somebody comes to you and they're coming with Negative things that they're experiencing. They're coming with trouble. Let's be careful as brothers and sisters in Christ not to try to just shut that down and not to come with sort of pat answers, uh, not to come simply with the same answer to everyone that this is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. For believers, that's real. That's true. And let's do our best to meet one another where we are. And as we do, to usher one another into the presence of Christ, to listen, to hear, to be sad with those who are sad, to be willing to recognize the causes of trouble where you see them, and then to say, let's come to the Lord. Let's pray. Let's ask him. He hears us to, in a sense, do what Martha does for Mary. The Lord is here. He's calling for you. The Bible is honest, and the Bible reflects honest questions, or at least partly honest questions, and those questions abound in a situation like this. Look at verse 37. We see a question that at least has some honesty to it. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's an understandable question. There are two problems. There are two problems in verse 37. One of them is that the people who are asking it fail to realize that they're asking it of someone who was able to open the eyes of the blind. They admit that he was able to, but they don't consider it like they should. They simply seem to say, if he's powerful enough, then why didn't he do something? He's powerful enough to do that. Why didn't he use his power the way that we think he should without recognizing if this is a person who's able to enter an utterly hopeless situation and change it, then maybe we ought to trust him. We don't see that trust reflected in this statement. And the fact that we don't see the trust reflected results in the second problem. And that is, they don't do what Mary and Martha do. They don't direct their question to Jesus. They don't come to him. They complain. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So there's a divide that's beginning. 
And that same phrase, but some of them, will show up next week. And we're going to find that it's more insidious, more troublesome than it might look even here. Jesus chose to let Lazarus die. And as he did, it wasn't because he didn't care about the sadness that he knew that was going to cause for people. He didn't do it because their sorrow didn't matter. He did it so that he could enter their sorrow. And as we'll see, he did it so that he could enter their sorrow much more deeply than they knew they needed him to, and so that he could enter ours. We see a beginning picture of that in verses 38 through 44. In this first paragraph, Jesus enters their sorrows. And he pictures how he enters ours. In verses 38 through 44, we see that Jesus came to undo death. Now, I would guess that for most of us in the present moment, the burden that we're carrying is more about what could happen than what has happened. For most of us. Some of us maybe are experiencing what has happened. Maybe with regard to sickness, uh, ourselves or a loved one. Maybe with regard to a job or a lost income. A lot of us are still in the calm before the storm, it feels. And we don't know what's going to happen. And so the burden we carry is more a matter of fear than it is a matter of grief. Grief is what, happened, what happens when fears are actually realized. Fear is always about something that might happen. And in this passage, Jesus shows that he's able to handle the harder of the two. Fear is always, to some degree, imagined grief. It's something that could happen. Because it could happen, maybe it won't. Grief is very different in the sense that it's responding to something that already has happened. Jesus shows here that he is able to handle that which means, of course, that he's also able to handle the easier one, our fears. If Jesus can undo the real causes of grief, even say despair, then he can handle the most likely problems, griefs that you can imagine. And if he chooses not to, if he chooses to allow your fears to happen, It's not the end of the story, so long as he's here, and he is. In in verses 38 and 39, we see grief. In one sense, we could even call it despair. Even, Even for those who believe in the eventual resurrection of the dead, like Martha, who says, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But for now, he's gone we see a picture of the finality of death in verses 38 and 39. And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. The stone is against the tomb. It's over. 
So you can understand Martha's response to Jesus when he says, take away the stone. The translation, there will be an odor, is a very polite translation. It doesn't quite do justice to the bluntness of Martha's actual expression. Might not give, do justice to the bluntness of her personality either. The, the very old King James gives us some help here. In this case, it, it, it better captures the bluntness of Martha's description. King James translation, instead of the polite, there will be an odor, is he stinketh. That's, that's a more accurate translation. He stinks. Lord, he has begun to rot. This is not a coma. This is not a swoon. He's been in the tomb for four days. And if you don't deal with this situation as it is, if you're not realistic about this, the problem's only going to get worse. How are we going to help anything by exposing the stench of death? But Jesus is not being talked out of this. He doesn't say, well, you have a point. He doesn't say, that's right, we don't want to experience that. He doesn't change his mind. He says in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? When did he, when did he tell Martha that? Well, he told her that in verses 23 to 26 in the conversation that he had with her that we looked at last week. When he told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now he tells her that same thing, but with different words. He says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. In other words, you'll see who I am. God is glorified by giving life to the dead through his Son. And you, Martha, can see it if you believe. If you bring death to me, you will see me give life. But you have to bring death out into the open. You have to remove the stone. And Martha believes, and so they do. And then Jesus begins to talk to his father. As we might expect, Jesus has already talked to his father about this. It appears that he has already prayed that his father would grant life to Lazarus. He's prayed for that, and he knows that the father has heard him. And so he expresses that, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But he's not doing this for himself. And so he brings the conversation between himself and his father, out into the public. Look at John 5.17. Jesus describes his interaction with his father, how he and his father partner together in their mission for the world. John 5.17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. They're partnering together to bring life out of death, and Jesus wants those around him to know that the Father has sent him to do this. That he's working in partnership with the Father. And so he talks to the Father publicly and he says, Thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you do. 
But I said this out loud so that people around can believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So they've rolled back the stone, and Jesus says something that even now is perhaps totally unexpected. Lazarus, come out. Imagine yourself standing there trying to process this. This is very strange. This is no more normal then than it would be for us today. The stone's rolled back. You barely even have time to make sense of what it is that Jesus has just said. He says this loudly. Maybe people step back and they wonder, what in the world is he even talking about? And then something starts to come out of the hole. Something that's wrapped tightly and that roughly looks like a human form, wrapped so tightly that perhaps it kind of has to shuffle and hop its way out of the tomb. And suddenly you see standing in front of you, this form that's been wrapped up in death. And everybody is so stunned that it appears even Martha, this this preeminent woman of action, has to be called to action now. He has to tell them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. He's alive. Jesus has brought life out of death. This is a very short description. Imagine if you were now sitting across the table from John, the writer of this story, and you had the opportunity to ask him more. Ask him for more detail. What would you want to know? How did Martha respond? Was she the first one to jump in and help unwrap him? How did Mary respond? How did Lazarus respond? What did Lazarus experience in those four days when he was beginning to rot in the tomb? Did he remember anything about it? Did he still stink when he came out of the tomb? We could have dozens of questions for John. And certainly John, as a good teller of of a story, these are true stories, that John could easily anticipate what his readers would want to know. So why doesn't he answer those questions? Because he doesn't want them, and he doesn't want us to miss the point. He doesn't want it to be distracted with many true and interesting things. He doesn't want us to miss the point. The point that Jesus enters our sorrows in order to undo death. Because even this amazing story is very, very small in comparison to the thing that it prepares us for. John, in his gospel, highlights a few amazing things that Jesus does. He highlights a few things that he refers to as signs, and you could count those up no more than about seven. He's very, very selective about what he writes, and he later says, you know what, if if we were to write everything, the whole world couldn't contain the books that would describe everything that Jesus did. John gives us no more than about seven. And this is the last one. In a sense, this is the most important one. This is the one that most fully pictures what Jesus came to do. He gives a sign. Jesus gives a sign, and John records a sign that shows that Jesus has the power to give life 
to the dead. This is a sign, and there is more to come. Look at John 5, 25 to 29. If you turn back just a few pages in John, or just listen, John 5, 25 to 29, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What Jesus does here is a very small picture of what he is going to do in the long-term future and what he is going to do in the near-term future. We pray for solutions to COVID-19. We pray for effective tests and strategies for vaccines and for treatments. We pray that those things would come quickly. And if and when they do, we will still need more. We'll still need more. We will still need someone who can undo death. Because even if a solution came today that healed everyone and we would praise the Lord for it, we are all still terminal. We all still need someone who can undo death, and here is the one who can. When he does it in John 11, he's not showing off. This is not some amazing parlor trick. He is showing the glory of God, the glory of God that is shown most fully when he gives life to those who are truly dead. He's preparing people for the true way that he is going to undo death. He's going to undo death by his death. And he accomplishes this sign in order to show people that they can trust him so that they will know that they can trust in his death. That he is, as John the Baptist describes early in the Gospel of John, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that great cause of our death. When Jesus relieves the sorrows of his friends in John 11, he sets in motion a sequence of events that will inevitably lead to his own sorrow, to sorrow greater than any of us have ever imagined. A sequence of events that lead to his own sorrow on the cross and a sequence of events that lead to their healing to their relief, to the solution to the problem that causes death in the first place. The Jesus who enters your sorrows in order to undo your death cares for you more deeply than you can imagine. Maybe more deeply than you want. Maybe more deeply than you're comfortable with. He knows what's wrong with you. He knows what's wrong with me including the stuff that you and I have hidden behind a stone because we know that if it were exposed, it would stink and it would only make matters worse. And so we keep it hidden. But what he tells Martha, he tells you and he tells me, 
If you believe, you will see the glory of God. So take away the stone. I know what's behind it. I have the power to undo it. I am the one who can deal with your death and with the cause of your death. So if you're not a believer in Jesus right now, I wonder I wonder if part of what keeps you from coming to him is the fear of that death and its stench being exposed. I can't let anybody know me as I really know myself. And Jesus knows you better. He knows what's behind the stone. And he tells you, take away the stone. Let me at it. Let me have it. I can give life from the dead. No matter how dead, no matter how much rot, no matter how much stench, I am the giver of life. I paid for it. Christian, same thing. We've all, those of us who have found life in Jesus, we all have these same experiences, right? Where even we have maybe a little tomb over here where we have a stone in front of it and we're saying, I, I don't, I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to deal with it. I certainly don't want it exposed. Jesus knows what's there. Jesus is able to deal with it. He already has. Bring it to him. And bring to him your fear and your grief. It's not the first time that he's let fear and grief happen. When he did it before, he did it so that he could enter the sorrows of his friends. And then, as now, it's not the end of the story because he's here. Father, as we step into this week, <clears throat> we don't quite know what to expect. Uh, there could be heightened fears. There could be heightened grief. Uh, we don't know. So would you continue to bring to our minds the picture of Jesus that you've so graciously given us in John 11, of the one who enters more deeply into our sorrows than we expect and enters them in order to undo death. May we trust him through each one of these temporary experiences to be the one who forever is our life. May your spirit help us to see this in Jesus' name. Amen.